Chapter Twelve of the Fairy of the Snows by Francis J. Finn, S.J. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Maria Therese. Chapter Twelve, Introducing David Riley and Showing How He Led a Double Life. My new office boy, David Riley, just turned fourteen, led a double life. It took me some time to find it out, but he did. Like all the office boys of St. Xavier's before him, he was a widow's son. He had a somewhat dark and slightly freckled face, a Celtic one at that, large eyes and an air of solemnity which often led me to think that he would, in time, qualify as an exceptional undertaker. For the first two weeks in my office I never knew him to smile. Under his dark curly hair rising up into a natural and striking pompadour, he wore an expression for which vacancy is a word sadly inadequate. He began his service of two years with me in the vacation month of August. I had chosen him because his mother, being a widow, needed his help, because he struck me as being thoroughly honest, and because, while he helped me in the office work, I intended giving him a chance to pursue his studies. I tried to discover in every way his sense, if any, of humor. From day to day I would ply him with such questions as follow. Many of his answers I jotted down in my diary. David, how would you like to be a pirate? David raised his eyes from a copy of one of Alger's books, and made answer. Father, I don't think I'd care to. Why not? It's wrong, ain't it? David, which would you rather be, a murderer or a bank robber? Father, I think I'd rather be a bank robber. Why? Father, I don't think I'd like to kill people. You'd rather crack safes? Father, I wouldn't like that either. Father, I don't think I'd like to be a bank robber. Gradually it came to this, that whenever I was tired or annoyed, I would come out of my office and ask David the most idiotic question I could think of, to which he invariably returned the most serious reply I could imagine. In this single detail of answering outrageous questions, David fairly earned his salary. David, also, was as slow as he was solemn. If I sent him to the post office for stamps, he would return in some twenty-five minutes, though the building was just two blocks distant. David, I said one day, you don't happen to have a valise, do you? No, father. You never did have a valise? Father, I think not, but I think I know a boy who has one. Do you want to borrow it? No, David, but I'm going to send you on an errand up Reading Road. The place is two miles from here, and I thought if you had a valise, you might bring along some food and a change of linen. Father, said David, I think I can borrow Pat Newton's valise. Oh, very well. We'll see about that when I've written the letter I want you to take. I was saying my name to that particular letter when David came in modestly. Father, how far did you say it was? Two miles or so. Father, I think I can go there and come back without needing food and a change of linen. If you fall by the wayside, David, call me up on the phone and I'll send you an ambulance. Thank you, Father, I will. Finally, David did show that he was human. I asked him one day whether he would like to go to the Ultra Boys picnic. Oh, yes, Father, I would. And David smiled. For three weeks I had asked ridiculous questions and told funny stories, only to gaze upon a face which might have been a graven image. A simple invitation to a picnic had effected what I had thought to be the impossible. During that day I caught David three different times, red-handed in the act of smiling. He always checked himself on catching my eye, and became against all seeming possibility more funereal in expression than ever. Jerry took great interest in David. For instance, when David was one day entering the schoolyard on his way to my office with a check for ten dollars, Jerry waylaid him. What's that you got, David? A man gave it to me for Father Carney. 
What is it? I don't know, Jerry. Why, you spalpeen? Can't you see it is a check? Oh, is it? Did you think it was a lightning rod? You Ahmed Han, can't you read? Why, boy, it's a check for ten dollars on the Brighton Bank. Oh, is it? Can't you say anything else but, oh, is it, you spindle-legged pole parrot? Yes, and what would the father be wanting with the check if he wants the money? Did you go to the bank and have it cashed? It's for ten dollars. Father Carney never told me. Oh, wara wara, are there any idiots in your family beside yourself? The trouble with you, David, is that you never do anything unless you're told to do it. You're a bump on a log. When Michael was here, he used to think things out for himself, and that's the reason Father Carney thought so much of him and got him a fine position in the railroad office. If you keep on the way you're going, Father Carney will end by sending you to the morgue. The Brighton Bank is pretty far away, isn't it? It's in the West End, a mile and a half or so. You'll be surprised when you come back with the money and see Father Carney's face. When two hours later, Master David, footsore and spent, dragged himself into my office without the money, he was surprised not only at the look on my face, but also with some of the comments I made on his business sense. As for Jared, that distinguished janitor kept sedulously out of my way for the ensuing four or five days. To him I am I indebted for the foregoing details. It was in the third week of Master David's engagement with me that I noticed a change, slight, it is true, but striking in his demeanor. On entering my office one morning, David jumped up, bowed, and said, Good morning, Father, and when I was leaving in the afternoon, he arose as before bowed again and said good afternoon father up to this time david unless spoken to had never spoken these salutations continued without variation for six or seven days then david visited me with another surprise as i entered on this particular morning he rose bowed and made his customary speech then he took in a full breath gulped breathed hard and said i hope father you you had you enjoyed a pleasant sleep last night my suspicions were confirmed I did, David. Thank you. And now, my boy, will you be good enough to tell me who has been coaching you to bow and say good morning? Father, it was Alice Murrow. Indeed. Yes, she and my sister Mary are in the same class, and Alice comes over to see her, and she gives me pointers. Did she tell you to express the hope I had a good night's rest? Yes, Father. She's been teaching me that for a week, and I tried to say it several times, but I just couldn't. I don't think, Father, I got it quite right, but I'll do better tomorrow. Well, David, I'll tell you what, you needn't ask me how I have slept, because I generally sleep well anyhow. But if you ever see me coming in with blood in my eye, and a black frown on my brow, and my fist doubled up ready to punch you, there'll be no need to ask the question, for that's a sure sign I've not slept well. There was a pause. David looked completely lost. Well, David, why don't you say something? Father, do you ever have blood in your eye? Wait and see. Anything else? And, Father, is Alice Morrow stringing me? I really don't know, David. If she is, I'll fix her, said David. It was on this very day, if my memory serves me right, that the Honorable Andrew Monahan, King and Councilman of the Eighth Ward, called me on the telephone. Say, Father, someone in your school has forged my name to a letter. What? Are you sure? It looks pretty sure. The letterhead reads St. Xavier's School, and the envelope is a school envelope, too. Could you find out who did it? It put me into quite an embarrassing position. I'll send you the letter at once. Very well, Mr. Monahan. I'll be glad to trace the matter up. Ten minutes later, Mr. Daniel Corbett, the councilman's factotum, appeared with the mysterious document. Read that, Father, he said. 
Sure enough, the paper and envelope came from the school office. The letter ran as follows. Mr. Pat Noonan. Dear Sir, I have heard that you had a good baseball team on the Fifth Street Hill last summer, and that you are going to start the same team again this spring. It would give me pleasure to fit you and the other teammates of your club, all of my ward, with baseball uniforms. Call with your players at my house any night when I am home. Yours truly, Andrew Monahan. The whole letter, including the signature, was typewritten. Now what do you think of that? ejaculated Mr. Corbett. Last night a delegation of thirteen boys were ushered into Mr. Monahan's sitting-room, where three or four of us were playing pinochle. They were all smiles. Well, boys, said the councilman. Mr. Monahan, said one little Irishman, I'm Pat Noonan. Oh, you are? I'm glad to know you, Pat. Well, what's up? Pat grew uneasy. I came about that letter, sir. What letter? Oh, you know, you've wrote to me about it, our ball club. Got that letter with you? Oh, you have. Let's see it. Then Mr. Monahan read it, and said, Boys, someone's put up a joke on you. The ball team, ceasing to smile, began to look with unfavorable eyes on their spokesman. Didn't you write it, sir? asked Pat. I certainly did not. Oh, ejaculated Pat. Goodbye, sir. It was fun to see how quickly Pat slipped through the crowd and made for the door. The next thing you know, without bow or word, the entire team was hot on the heels of their captain. He had a start of fifty or sixty feet on them, and I hope he got home safe. Evidently, I said, some mischievous boy managed to get hold of our paper and envelopes. I know that it wasn't my office boy, because he's incapable of a joke. However, I'll inquire of him. He may know something. What I learn, I will send you word. Accordingly, when David returned from an errand to the office, I said, David, did you let any boy have the use of our typewriter to write a letter? No, father, I didn't. Did you let any boy have a sheet of our office paper in an office envelope? No, father, I did not. David, I'm puzzled. Somebody's got in here, and I think has used your typewriter for a letter. Maybe it was Jerry. No, Jerry wouldn't do it. Do you see this letter? And I opened the sheet for David's inspection. The boy grew very pale, and then very red. David, I said sternly, what do you know? Father, I, I wrote that letter. Good gracious, I exclaimed, and fell into a chair. It was only a joke, father. Do you ever joke, David? N not very often, father. David, my boy, you're leading a double life. What's that, father? Ignoring his question, I proceeded to give David a little talk on the ethics of our school office, and the danger of signing other people's names, to all of which the boy simply said, Father, I won't do it again. It was my custom to it was my custom to dismiss David every afternoon about four o'clock, a dismissal welcome generally with noticeable alacrity on his part in getting away. On this particular afternoon, however, David, in reply to my You can go now, said father if you please i just as soon stay and read was the boy taking a literary turn david how would you like to be a poet i don't think i would like it very much father why not because i want to be a fireman do you want me to be a poet father the next afternoon's dismissal and the next met with the same extraordinary request look here boy i said on the third occasion what's the reason you've so suddenly come to love sticking in this office Father, they're waiting for me. Who are waiting for you? Pat Noonan and the rest of the team. What's the matter with them? 
Father, I don't think they like that letter I wrote very much. Oh, you don't? No, Father. What are they waiting for you for? I don't know, Father. Why don't you find out? Please, Father, I'd rather not. I watched David depart that afternoon. Instead of going down to Fifth and then eastward to his home, a walk of five or six minutes, he went up to Court Street, then, as I afterwards ascertained, up to Mount Adams and down that famous hill of art to his proper domicile. This state of siege lasted for nearly a week, and came to an end in a way entirely unexpected. David, all alone, was in the last half-hour of his self-imposed vigil, and was figuring out what new route he should take for his home. He never, it seemed, took the same one, when a man entered the office and asked to see the janitor. David invited him to sit down and wait while he went in search of Jerry. Leaving the office and reaching the stairway leading down to the engine room, it suddenly occurred to the boy to go back and see what the man was doing. You see, David explained to me later, the man looked queer. Back, therefore, David hurried. There was no one in the outer office. Either the man had gone out or he had slipped into my private office. David tiptoed forward and peeped through the keyhole. My desk was on a line with the door, and David saw the man with some instrument trying to pry it open. David straightened up and took clot. He looked around him. A long pole, a window opener, caught his eye. He brought it over to the closed door. There was a handbell used for various purposes. This, too, handling gingerly, he placed within easy reach of the pole. Then hurrying over to the music room, he got a fire extinguisher and placed that next the other articles. Quietly raising the window just outside the door of my office, David reached out with the bell and gave three quick, vigorous swings letting it with the last swing fall into the yard. As one hand dropped the bell, the other was reaching for the fire extinguisher. It was too heavy to handle with one hand, and David, as he threw open the door, dropped it. The fire extinguisher, lying on the floor like some dismantled cannon, gave forth, for David had upset it, a hideous sound and a powdery stream. David took no time to study the conduct of the fire extinguisher, for he had now got his third weapon, the pole, in his two hands. The burglar, frightened by the noise of the bell, was still more frightened as the door was thrown open by the mysterious gurgling explosive, designed, it might be, to blow him up. He had thrown open the farther window in the office on hearing the bell. He now jumped upon the sill at the sight of the fire extinguisher. At him dashed the heroic David, yelling at the top of his voice, Police! Police! Thieves! At the same time, prodding with such effect that out of the window went the man a little sooner than he intended. He landed eight feet below on hands and knees, instead of on his feet, to find on arising that he was surrounded by a crowd, brought partly by the bell, partly by the spectacle he had afforded the passers-by, and dropping out of the window, partly by the vigorous yells of the dauntless youth. "'Hold him!' screamed David. "'He's a thief!' The usual indecision of a crowd showed itself, and the man, had he not been dazed, might easily have effected his escape. Just then, Jerry, who had heard the bell, came rushing through the crowd, carrying a pot of green paint. "'Where's the thief?' he cried. "'There!' cried a dozen willing voices. Whereupon, Jerry promptly threw the paint into the man's face, and dropping the empty can, seized the green criminal. With men like Jerry and boys like David to deal with, the life of a thief would be full of unimagined surprises. David's picture was in the commercial tribune, the next morning, with the inscription, "'David Riley, the boy hero,' Single-handed, he captures a notorious thief. David smiled several times that morning. One of these times was when he said to me, Father, I think I can go home regularly now.
Oh, have you and Pat made up? The fellows have thrown him down. They elected me captain this morning, and they're not laying for me any more. And how about Pat? Are they going to take it out on him? Father, they did take it out on him last night when they heard I had captured a robber. End of chapter 12 Recording by Maria Therese